I'm a runner. It's a community I identify with. And so the date of April 15th, 2013 is particularly notable to me. That Monday was cool, with sun periodically filtering through the clouds. There was a calm, east-southeasterly headwind at Copley Square, home to the finish line of the Boston Marathon. Perfect running weather. I myself, though, was seated behind my desk, logged into the athlete tracking system so I could virtually cheer on my friends and my community. By 2.48 p.m., approximately 17,000 runners had completed the race, while 9,000 more were still advancing toward the finish line. One minute later, the first of two improvised explosive devices detonated near the finish line. The second explosion took place 13 seconds later. The explosions occurred near a large number of spectators, resulting in three deaths and 264 people injured. If you've seen the video footage of the incident, you know the scene was horrific. EMS responders and healthcare professionals at six area hospitals treated over 140 victims during the aftermath. These healthcare professionals were ready to handle the sudden influx of patients because they had honed their technical skills, communication, and problem-solving responses in mass casualty simulations years before the actual incident. All of these victims survived. That's a chilling but poignant example of the potential for simulation-based education. The use of simulation in healthcare educational programs has grown over the last decade. Yet, simulation still has its skeptics and detractors. So today, we'll take a deeper look at the use of simulation in education. I'm Kathy Bowers, and you're listening to The Objective Lens. Simulation-based education has been employed in the aviation industry for decades. It makes sense that this particular industry has been a pioneer in its use. After all, planes are incredibly expensive, and accidents can be deadly. So allowing new pilots to train on the real McCoy is understandably undesirable. Beyond the technical training, understanding the controls and features of individual aircraft The industry has also been a pioneer in using simulation to improve professional interaction and communication amongst the flight team. In 1979, the American National Aeronautic and Space Administration, you know them better as NASA, sponsored an aviation industry workshop entitled Resource Management on the Flight Deck. The workshop focused on the causes of aviation accidents. NASA research presented at the workshop suggested that 70% of aircraft aviation accidents were caused by failures of decision-making, interpersonal communications, and leadership amongst the flight crew. In other words, the majority of aviation accidents were caused not by airplanes, but by the humans flying them. And so training, conducted in simulated environments, began to focus on avoiding errors and mitigating errors that did occur through increased communication and situational awareness. The improvements in airplane safety have been stark, and air travel is now considered one of the safest modes of transportation. So the adoption of similar practices and philosophy by the healthcare industry is unsurprising. 
still people I come across who say, well, I hear the jury's still out on simulation. And clearly, some people don't know that there's well over a thousand studies in the healthcare literature across dozens of different professions that compare simulation-based education to alternatives. And when you're talking about high-level uh, learning outcomes, like integrating competencies to do complex tasks, simulation across the board outperforms some of the traditional teaching methods. That's Dr. Timothy Willett, President and CEO of SimOne. SimOne is a not-for-profit organization that connects the simulation community, facilities, and resources across Canada. Dr. Willett received his MD from the University of Ottawa and a Master's of Medical Education from the University of Dundee in Scotland. He has served as curriculum developer and educational researcher for the University of Ottawa, CRI Critical Care Education Network, and Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. He is a passionate advocate for simulation-based learning in healthcare. If there are over a thousand studies that speak to the value of simulation-based learning, then why does simulation still have its skeptics? I think a lot of the skeptics aren't aware of necessarily what the educators have in mind and are talking about. And they may not realize a number of things. First of all, they may not realize the breadth of simulation modalities. And then we're not just talking about um, you know, working with plastic version of a real piece of equipment or a mannequin instead of a human. Um, but we could be talking about working with standardized patients, working with virtual machines, working with virtual patients, working in virtual reality, working on task trainers. One is, is educating about the scope. Uh, the second is educating about the evidence that exists. One of the landmark studies amongst the thousand studies Dr. Willett refers to is the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, the NCSBN, National Simulation Study. This large-scale, randomized, controlled study looks specifically at the issue of whether simulation-based learning can replace some of the education traditionally provided in the clinical setting. Incoming nursing students from 10 pre-licensure programs across the United States were randomized into one of three study groups. In the control group, Students had traditional clinical experiences where no more than 10% of clinical hours could be spent in simulation. In a second group, students had 25% of their traditional clinical hours replaced by simulation. And in a third group, students had 50% of their traditional clinical hours replaced by simulation. The study began in the fall of 2011. Students were assessed on clinical competency and nursing knowledge, and they rated how well their learning needs were met in both the clinical and simulation environments. A total of 666 students completed the study requirements at the time of graduation, and the results might surprise you. I'll highlight three points for you here. At the end of the nursing program, one, there were no statistically significant differences in clinical competency as assessed by clinical preceptors and instructors. Two, there were no statistically significant differences in comprehensive nursing knowledge assessments. And three, there were no statistically significant differences in the national certification exam pass rates among the three study groups. The study cohort was also followed for the first six months of clinical practice, there were no differences in manager ratings of overall clinical competency and readiness for practice at any of the follow-up survey time points, six weeks, three months, and six months of practice as a new registered nurse. 
The results of this study provide substantial evidence that substituting high-quality simulation experiences for up to half of traditional clinical hours produces comparable educational outcomes and new graduates that are ready for clinical practice. The potential ability to reduce clinical hours here is key because part of the urgency in the discussion about increasing simulations use is the need to increase the supply of graduates. Research indicates that the number and complexity of laboratory tests are increasing. Ontario had projected a 1.8% per year increase in lab tests between 2005 and 2010. However, an actual increase of almost 4% per year was experienced. Advances in testing capabilities and precision medicine will continue to increase orderable tests in the future. For example, the number of genetic tests available has doubled over the past two years. This situation will be further compounded by Canada's aging population. Add that to the impending retirements and the shortages already being felt in our rural and remote communities, and you've got yourself a health human resources issue. The current supply of new MLT graduates is simply not sufficient to meet the projected need. MLT workforce projections developed by Nova Scotia Health Authority show that in a worst-case scenario, the province may find itself almost 200 MLT short of its current level. That's a problem. The pipeline of new graduates is too small, and it can't increase without creating more capacity for clinical placements. And that's not an easy task. In April 2016, CSMLS released a report on the current state of simulation and clinical placement in medical laboratory science programs. In that report, 23% of academic programs said they didn't have enough clinical sites to meet their needs, while 71% said it just met the demand. So simulation stands as one of the tangible strategies to help programs increase their capacity to produce competent graduates. So the, the issues of, of health workforce supply um, and meeting that supply, especially over the next 20 years when demand's going to go up, but retirements from professions are also going to go way up, uh, is something that's affecting almost every profession. And many are having conversations about how can we keep up with the demand, how can we ensure our enrollments continue to, uh, uh, to be maximized, uh, but in the face of uh, diminishing clinical placements, either in the, the quantity of clinical placements or the quality of cl clinical placements, or in many cases, what because of safety concerns, what learners are being allowed to do on those clinical placements. So, And so perhaps simulation's potential to address the HHR concerns of the profession is the proverbial carrot, we need to win over the skeptics. However, Dr. Willett is quick to point out that it isn't the only reason or even the best reason for enhancing simulations use in the education of healthcare professionals. The end goal and what you have to keep everyone focused on is producing a highly competent, hopefully more than competent, a proficient uh, graduate who can safely enter into practice and, and effectively and efficiently do the work they need to do. If you keep the conversation around that goal, then yeah, there might be pressure and there might be a stick from the lack of clinical placements and the need to keep up enrollment. But there's this, this is just pushing everyone towards an opportunity. And there's an opportunity here to make uh, our health professions education 
more effective and more efficient and produce better graduates. It just happens that the clinical placement shortage is pushing us to finally have that conversation, revisit the way we train uh, our students uh, and improve our, our educational system. The lab staff need students to be more self-sufficient than ever. They need them to have confidence and critical thinking skills and a really good understanding of lab workflow. That's the voice of Rhonda Shea. Rhonda is the lead of the Collaborative Learning and Education Program at the Health Quality Council of Alberta. In this role, she creates learning materials on patient safety and quality using multiple training techniques, including simulation. She's also a former educator at the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. In that clip, Rhonda is describing what she sees as the current state of employer expectations of new graduates, and that expectation has shifted over the years. The job of an educational program has been to produce a competent graduate ready to begin their career. However, what Rhonda just described is significantly more than just minimally competent. It's proficient. And that gap between the two expectations can be a real challenge. To address that challenge, simulation can play a role in pushing the learning beyond the acquisition of a concept or skill and move towards being able to practice that skill proficiently within the context of a working medical lab. One of the competencies is frozen sectioning, but instead of just doing frozen sectioning in a vacuum, what I did is I would give them a frozen section as if it was a real section that was coming in from a surgical suite. They would prepare the sample and they would cut it in a timely manner and it would have to be of a certain quality. Now, we did this multiple times uh, during their rotation in the sim lab so that they would get used to doing it under pressure and I didn't tell them when I was actually evaluating them so that they didn't know they were being evaluated. Um, it gave a level of comfort um, and they were able to become really proficient at doing that particular skill and understanding the workflow of frozen sectioning. So if they were to go into the clinical site and do a frozen section, they would know exactly how it would work. With this approach, students gain confidence in their ability to handle the routine practices of their new profession. But it's not only the routine that students need to prepare for. Rhonda shares how simulation can be used to educate students on tasks they may not get an opportunity to practice within the clinical setting. And she introduces me to the term halo event. The hematology instructor at the time would create uh, fake CSS samples that the students would have to spin down and do a cell count on because, of course, CSS is it's it's a halo event, and halo means high acuity, low opportunity. So it means it's one of those things that when it enters the lab, you got to know exactly what you're doing. You have to do it in a timely manner, and it is really important that you do it right. And so, and plus, there, the specimen itself is not a vast quantity; like it's a, it's a very like precious specimen. So, what she would do is she would prepare these fake samples. Um, she would walk in and say, "There's a stat CSF." The students would then prepare the CSF, um, do the cell count on it, and report it out. And so it was exactly as it would have happened in a clinical laboratory. So it gave them a really good appreciation for, first of all, how 
important they are, that they had to drop whatever it was they were doing at the time. So they could have been doing discs or, um, you know, making making slides or whatever. They could have been doing a number of things, but as soon as the staff came in, they had to drop what they were doing, address it. They had to prepare it appropriately, not waste any sample. They had to report the results, and then they were critiqued on whether the results were accurate or not because she would know what the results were ahead of time. Um, so it, that was actually an excellent example as well and helped to prepare the students for working in a more core lab situation where they might be doing other tasks and are asked to stop their task in order to do something that is of higher priority. Oftentimes, the rarer a situation is, the more important it is that the professionals are ready to handle it. The earlier example of the Boston Marathon bombing is a prime illustration. We can't afford for the professionals to be learning on the fly in these types of scenarios, where lives are on the line. They need to be prepared and ready to go the first time they encounter such an event. And that's where simulation can allow them to gain experience in a safe and controlled environment. The massive hemorrhage protocol is another halo event. Just as it sounds, a massive hemorrhage protocol is an event where a large amount of blood products need to be delivered in a short period of time to patients requiring immediate support and intervention. Thanks to the work of Rhonda and her colleagues, Dr. Gwen Clark, Amanda Van Spronson, and then MLT student Megan Parrish, there is a simulation of this event. During the simulation, the ER nurse will initiate the scenario by calling the lab to say that a mass trauma incident has occurred. The technologists then perform all the steps of the protocol while responding to different developments and distractors to make it more complex and challenging. By debriefing after the simulation, the participants can spot their individual mistakes, but can also see where future policy or procedure might need to change to improve the response in a real event. That's pretty powerful. It adds a different level of understanding to the procedure that the person is doing. So as you said, it's not just about the technical skill. It's about all of the other components, so communication, um, resource management, uh, prioritization, all of those different aspects that are not necessarily taught in a didactic or a student lab type setting unless you do it as if it is a simulation. Helen Goulding is a senior lecturer in the microbiology program at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology, and she's a medical laboratory technologist. In 2008, she created a virtual microbiology laboratory for the medical laboratory science program. The lab became an important component of the curriculum, allowing students to practice bacterial identification, make decisions, and most importantly, make mistakes. And it's basically an online tool that mimics the way we identify bacteria on the bench. So the students can access this virtual lab. I call it the biosafety level two lab that they can basically access from anywhere and everywhere. It is full of images and videos. It's like the cooking show. Just like you were on the bench when you're going through bacterial identification, um, you have to make decisions as to what a test result means and what your next test would, would be following that same like bacterial pathway. So students 
still have to choose the expected results, the correct one, and then fall, and, and, and at the end, if they go through it correctly, they, they achieve their idea of their organism, but it's all virtual. Helen is a proponent of simulation-based learning and has seen firsthand the benefits of using this teaching methodology. She's also seen firsthand the challenges of implementing more simulation into school curriculum, which isn't exactly easy. The barriers and challenges for us is primarily the initial costs it might take to develop uh, simulation and the fact and the time, the faculty time it takes to develop that kind of simulation. For instance, the virtual lab. Um, took uh, two months in the summertime working with the IT department to develop. And then the following year, it was completely revamped from scratch again. So lots of time that it takes to, to build these, these uh, online simulations. There's also a high demand on instructor time for our simulation laboratory sessions while they're running. The challenges don't stop there. Helen continues. Instrumentation costs can be very high as well. There's, we need a high ratio of students to instrumentation, so that means we need to buy a lot more so that it's more mimics more of a real lab. And finally, I think the, the last uh, challenge is scheduling can be really difficult within the confines of a university course and program in the sense of uh, uh, we can't easily just add extra laboratory time for simulation. It's all within the t- uh, student's schedule, and we're we're bound by certain restrictions for time. And as well, simulation takes up a lot of laboratory space as well. So that's that's I think I believe are the the biggest barriers around uh, simulation, uh, adopting simulation in a curriculum. These are real issues that institutions grapple with when looking at enhancing the amount of simulation-based education in their curricula. But with the potential benefit to student outcomes being so great, and the alluring idea that simulation could enable programs to expand the number of graduates to better meet the needs of the healthcare system, is this a justifiable investment? A necessary one? Working now in a clinical environment and kind of knowing what I, what I know now, dealing with you know real patients, um, I understand how as a student you can feel very vulnerable and and be really concerned about maybe not having all the information or experience really to to treat a real patient. So looking back on on simulation, I think it was really useful to give students an environment where they can make mistakes. You know, they can go through the process of what they have to do in um, their clinical setting and not really worry about the, the severe consequences. And when you're dealing with a profession that, that you know, makes cancer diagnoses a lot of times, um, you're really worrying about your patient. So again, um, being able to practice that, I think, is, is really good. That's Brendan O'Brien, a cytotechnologist at Eastern Health in St. John's, Newfoundland. He became a certified MLT in 2015 after graduating from Dalhousie University and completing two clinical placements in Halifax and Toronto. As a recent grad, Brendan is acutely aware of how his education prepared him to enter the labor market. 
he credits the combination of clinical education and simulation in helping him feel confident to practice his chosen profession. While he recognizes some of the resource challenges in implementing simulation, he points out some very effective and low-cost uses. So something we did in simulation that really helped me moving into my work environment was it was really simple, it was, it was quick and easy, and it was practicing making phone calls. So in our simulation, we would have a clinical educator on the other line, and they would either be, you know, maybe a disgruntled patient looking for history or um, a physician looking for information of submitting samples um, or even calling in like alert values for certain uh, diagnoses. So by going through the steps, you know, feeling comfortable making phone calls, um, I went into my work environment pretty confident in, in calling physicians up and requesting information or giving diagnoses that um, I wouldn't have previously. Um, so really just being able to work over something simple like that uh, really helped me moving forward. Brendan also repeatedly reminded me of the importance of clinical education. From his perspective, simulations can only do so much. It's hard to perfectly replicate the complex social structures of the lab and of the larger hospital environment. He also points out that you have a certain comfort level at the school with the faculty and other students who are involved in the simulations. That comfort level disappears when you find yourself in the clinical environment for the first time. And there is no replacing the experience of the other professionals a student will encounter or the knowledge they pass on to students during their clinical placement. So striking the appropriate balance of simulation-based learning and clinical education is key. But there is another issue that simulation can help the profession solve. It's an issue that is known but not always talked about so openly. Not all clinical sites offer the same learning experience. And again, not all clinical sites are created equally, right? We know across Canada, our clinical sites, they vary. And so it's really important that students are, are getting an equal education. And it's not always fair that, you know, while some student might go to, say, Toronto General and be exposed to really a, a quite a variety of specimens and, and technologies, the student who goes to a rural and remote area should be able to have the same experience. And, and maybe they won't if, if, if they're there. So simulation really bridges that gap and, and creates an even playing field for the students to get the experience they need so that they can go, they can go and work anywhere in Canada. Current trends in healthcare may further exasperate this issue. Greater centralization and specialization will limit the clinical education that can take place in certain sites. Those disciplines facing the brunt of these changes may need simulation more than ever. Well, I, I truly believe that the use of simulation in healthcare education is an expectation today. Um, it's definitely driven by increasing demands of improving healthcare delivery and the requirements of, of our students demonstrating skill in a, in a competency-based program. You know, for our students to achieve uh, competency requires a lot of knowledge and experience. And some of that is really difficult to gain within a traditional uh, hands-on laboratory. The feedback I've gotten from our employers and what I think what most healthcare 
workers feel today is it, it's just not okay for our students to practice on real people or real patients anymore. Um, that was the historically how we we used to do things and it's just not ethical. So simulation allows our students to practice their skills in a risk-free environment, which is a benefit to both them and, and to our patients overall. I asked Helen, where do we go from here? If simulation is beneficial on so many fronts and stands as one of the only possible ways of increasing the supply of new practitioners, how do we move forward? The direction we need to go to is we really need to include future research and maybe include something like a pre and post study that would compare usage and performance with simulation. We know students really like simulation. We know that they have stated that it helps them acquire skills, but whether those skills are truly transferable to the real world is a question that still needs to be addressed. Research does exist. In fact, a relatively large body of it, as Dr. Willett referred to earlier. However, publications are almost non-existent for the medical laboratory community. So having profession-specific research could be a great benefit to the education community and the greater laboratory community to gain support for enhancing simulation-based learning. Additional research on simulation would really highlight the benefits and the future directions that that we we need to go to. It may even highlight some of the drawbacks of simulation. But if we share that knowledge with other medical laboratory programs, I think we can get more people to buy into simulation and to keep keep the ball rolling in the direction that we need to go into this because it's really no longer acceptable for us to practice our skills on real patients. The CSMLS is currently working on the National Medical Laboratory Simulation Study. The purpose of the study is to develop and validate simulation-based curricula that will support student competency achievement, expedite students' entry into the workforce, and increase the graduate output capacity. The study will aim to achieve the following. Determine whether simulation can be substituted for clinical hours, Construct evidence on the efficiency and effectiveness of varying amounts and types of simulation-based curricula. Determine the educational outcomes of medical laboratory students when enhanced and or new simulation is integrated into curricula. And create a national database of simulation curricula available to all medical laboratory programs for adoption. The National Medical Laboratory Simulation Study is part of a long-term, multi-phase research project, and the CSMLS has submitted for federal grant funding to make this a reality. The use of simulation in the education of laboratory professionals is here and expanding. The benefits are pretty substantial. There is some debate as to the right balance of simulation and clinical education, and some legitimate concerns about replacing clinical education hours with simulation. And the debate is ultimately a good thing. After all, we need to make careful choices to ensure that any increases in program capacity doesn't come at a cost to patient safety. So the dialogue that is currently taking place about simulation is positive and something we, as a profession, should feel good about. I'll let Dr. Willett have the last word on the subject. 
there's discussions in all kinds of circles, all kinds of professions that I've you know, heard about or been part of. The only profession having this discussion explicitly, acknowledging the elephant in the room and deciding that at a national level, including all stakeholders, regulatory bodies, employers, educators, is medical lab science. The Objective Lens is written and produced by Michael Grant and myself, Kathy Bowers, and is the official podcast of the Canadian Society for Medical Laboratory Science. Administrative support by Rudmilla Minor. Editorial and editing support by Erica Dow. For other episodes, supplemental content, and bonus material, visit our website at podcast.csmls.org. If you're in the medical laboratory field, you'll want to go to the website to find a link to a short quiz. By completing the quiz, you'll earn a certificate verifying professional development hours by listening to this episode. We'd love to hear from you. Come chat with us on Twitter at CSMLS or Facebook. You can find us at facebook.com slash CSMLS. Thanks for listening.